Hello all and welcome to our podcast. We are The Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host Danny and with me as always is my co-host Nick. Hello. Thank you for joining us again today for another conversation about some of our favorite films. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Kinotomic. Uh, we're also open for any abuse, adulation and everything in between at Kinotomic at gmail.com. So drop us a line and tell us how badly we're doing. So today we're doing a noir episode in preparation for November, which I am very much looking forward to. As am I. Yeah, good program. So the first film we'll discuss is... Lady, the Lady from Shanghai, made 1946, released 1947, directed by Orson Welles. Here's a sh- short synopsis. Fascinated by gorgeous Mrs. Bannister, Seaman Michael O'Hara join, joins a bizarre yachting cruise and he en- ends up mired in a complex murder plot. So Nick, what did you think of the of Lady of Shanghai? Um. Okay, so... So two things kind of um, occurred to me during this film. Yeah, I know. Uh oh. So so two film two things kind of occurred to me during this. Um, so the first thing off, Rita Hayworth is utterly stunning. Um, she's perhaps the most beautiful woman I've ever seen on any movie. <laughs> um, and that you know that that uh, she's she's a very very she's a joint first with um, Grace Kelly in uh, in Rear Window as like the most beautiful woman I've ever seen on, on a film. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with that. And then, <laughs> so the second bit is even with the, the narration from, from Orson Welles um, as Michael O'Hara in this, with his kind of this weird, odd Irish accent, um, the film is, is at equal points kind of, confusing and ridiculous and pretty weird <laughs> and actually pretty good as well um and which is kind of a personality trait of this film which shares with the other film we're talking about later today at least in my yeah. opinion yeah yeah i agree um, I, think, I think they make a good match so like the first hour itself i mean it's quite normal i mean uh, uh, to say that you know with with a bit of caveats, I mean, you know, they've got the weird witch people. There's a there's a love triangle, and our hero, if we can call him that, is you know he's a bit confused. And there's beautiful panoramic, you know, shots, and and you know, Rita Hayworth is in a bathing suit, um, you know, and then and then kind of the murder happens, um, which was really deliberately confusing. Two murders, yeah. Well, yeah. It was kind of like deliberately confusing as to what was going on. And then things kind of started to unravel. And I kind of found myself, like I said, a bit feeling a bit kind of confused about what was going on. And then like this courtroom scene happened. And that felt as though it belonged in a different film. Um, It was kind of like there was some humour in there and there was some farce in there. And it just didn't seem to kind of fit. And, And then... The film moves on to a Chinese theatre, which is really quite brilliantly suspenseful. Then there's the the carnival rooms, and then there's House of Mirrors. 
um, in this this third act, and it, it just all of a sudden just elevates this film all of a sudden, like you know, it, it's it's almost as though like in the third act, you know, it's it's the this is the birth of the third act climax that we, we you know we come to expect from modern blockbusters, where all the ideas and the visual experimentation and all the all the money and the budget just kind of goes into the third act and kind of comes at you at once, and. You know, there were a couple of times watching the film, you know, in that first hour, I kind of thought, oh, yeah, I, you know, I, Orson Welles is the director of this. And there was one particular shot which was really interesting. It was a close-up shot. Then it kind of, the camera stayed static and it was a close-up on Orson Welles' face. And, and Ginsey's boat kind of comes up to the to the yacht and he walks away, but the camera stays put. And that's a very, very quite interesting shot for, for 19, 1947. And, you know, but there's very, very few bits in that where I'm thinking, oh, yeah, Orson Welles directed this. But then in the final showdown, in that, that, that you know, with the, the, the reflections and the overlapping faces and the, and the gunshots and the smashed glass, you know, it kind of occurred to me that in 1947, only the director of Citizen Kane would actually do these things. Um, so, well, basically, I kind of... At this point now, where I'm thinking, all right, this is this is pretty, pretty weird, but also pretty good, but also confusing. <laughs> and I read, I read somewhere that, um, you know, I, I, you know, this is a long time ago, and I, I, I swear I read somewhere that um, this film was the, the was called the weirdest greatest movie, the weirdest great movie ever, or something. And yeah, I think I, I read I, that review as well. Yeah, I, I I do actually agree with that statement, and this is not this film was not what I was expecting. I was not expecting this. I was kind of expecting a little bit sort more something a bit more conventional, but with a lot more dramatic flair. I wasn't some expecting this from Orson Welles. Yeah, but hang on, yeah, but I, I conventional. Yeah, no, I know that's what I mean. Like, I was kind of expect. I wasn't expecting like conventional. I was just expecting something that was masterfully directed and and kind of not as confusing if if that makes any sense because citizen kane isn't a confusing film like you know that's a very you know you're very very you, you need to be you know not paying any attention to not get citizen kane and i think with this it was just kind of i don't know like i, I wasn't expecting this but as someone who is you know i you know i am trying to attempt to to kind of watch the work of orson wells albeit quite slowly you know i i am i am i'm very glad to kind of knock this off the list and 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 it made and like you said like it, it does make an interesting pairing with with the later film which i do hope we we go into a little bit so yeah i mean i i hope i'm not alone really in my thoughts i hope i'm not i'm not the only person who who, who kind of thought this about the the lady of shanghai the lady from shanghai so i say sorry yeah um I think yeah I think you're pretty spot on I was just as I was as I was listening to you I was thinking that what maybe made the film as confusing as it ended up being was the fact that it was I don't think it it was directed by Orson Welles but I think it was so heavily cut and and redone and re-managed by Columbia Pictures to a degree that it I don't think the movie what ended up being the movie was what Orson Welles wanted 
to do. I think there's a lot to be said about not having, he didn't have, I don't think he had full creative control because he was very, he was at odds with Harry Cohn from Columbia Pictures who um, kept asking him to have more uh, close-ups of Rita Hayworth. Um, and yeah, that's why he didn't even, he waited for a year before he released the film because he thought that because Rita Hayworth was blonde and he, she had short hair on film, it made her, it would destroy her career. Um, I think, I absolutely love this film. I think it would make more sense with each viewing. Um, I think it's Rita Hayworth's one of her best roles. I, I noticed something on her performance that I didn't, hadn't seen before uh, when they were in the um, um, Chinese theater and he basically re reveals that she, he knows she's the killer. Um, you see her face twitch slightly and you kind of go like oh my god she's just so subtly going like yeah maybe I am maybe I'm not sorry that I killed that person but only for like a split second and you've like you blink and you've missed it um, yeah and I think Hollywood wasn't ready for Orson Welles and his his vision because a lot of there were a lot of problems on on the on this production there were a lot of changes there were a lot of script changes but I think that's how Orson Welles worked and he wasn't given the creative freedom that he that he was given on Citizen Kane. This was no RKO, and um, because Citizen Kane wasn't the success it should have been, because you know reasons, um, he didn't have the creative control that he should have had. And yeah, uh, for instance, Harry Cohen made um, him add a, a scene where Rita Hayworth sings a song because he she sang a song in Gilda and she wanted to replicate the success of Gilda and and so on and so forth um, for instance I found that Orson Welles wanted the sound to be a disruptive element in the film like something to unsettle the viewer like key, keying voices in um, at low level so you could people strain and make out what was being said and Except for a very, very few minor instances where this is left in, almost everything was corrected by the way by the Columbia Studios department. So everything in terms of like what he wanted to achieve with this film was kind of fixed in post production. And um, yeah, Orson Welles hated the sound mixing and he hated the score as well. Um, he didn't like the score; he felt it was disruptive to the performances. And for instance, the in the ending scene, he didn't want any score on it, any music, so he can add a bit to the suspense. That scene is brilliant. It's one of the best scenes in, in film noir history, I think. And it has been replicated and re referenced in so many other films. I think off the top of my head, the like John Wick and um, The Man with the Golden Gun, aka that Bond movie where Christopher Lee has three nipples. <laughs> um, but yeah I thought it was just I, I love the cinematography um, on this and, and I love the direction and I think it could have been even better had the studio stayed out of it um, a funny story there were like I said there were quite a few problems with the production from blistering hot weather, weather that made people sick including Rita Hayworth she was she suffered from like sunstroke there were poisonous insects, barracudas in the waters, and one assistant cameraman actually died from sunstroke. 
and um, Errol Flynn, who owned the yacht used for filming, his contract actually stipulated that the yacht could only be used when he was present. So they actually lost quite a few days of shooting because Errol Flynn was just disappeared drunk somewhere. Um, so yeah, Errol Flynn um, wanted the man uh, buried at sea in a duffel bag. Fortunately, Orson Welles called the police on time. <laughs> what um? Wh- where was this? Where was this shot? Um, I think it was off the coast of Acapulco, but there were several sh- several um, places. Uh, I found that Orson Welles decided on on a place to film and then changed his mind and then decided again and then changed his mind. And um, yeah, he yeah he was. I think he was a bit conflicted during the production of this film. It might have to do with the fact that he was getting divorced from Rita Hayworth. Really? Yeah, I think right after the film finished, they the fi- the di- divorce was finalized. Unfortunately, I thought they were quite cute together, and I loved. I'm glad that they made a film together. So, yeah. The Hall of Mirror Maze was designed with the help of special effects wizard Lawrence W. Butler, who had provided the screen magic in films like Things to Come and The Thief of Baghdad. It contained 2,900 square feet of glass. Some of the mirrors were two-way, allowing Charles Lawton Jr., the, the cinematographer, and the crew to shoot through them. Other times they were shot through uh, holes drilled in, in the glass. And um, sometimes I think when the when you have Michael Harris sort of sliding through the um, the, the slides in, in in the crazy house, I think people were uh, the cinematographer was sliding along with the camera. So yeah. Um, a fun fact: a remake of this film. You're gonna love this. A remake of this movie came close to production from producers John Woo and Terence Chang and screenwriter Jeff Vintar. The script was based on both the original Orson Welles screenplay and the original pulp novel by Sherwood King, entitled If I Die Before I Wake. Brendan Fraser was eyeing the Welles role. Uh, right. <laughs> and guess who he wanted to play Arthur and Elsa Bannister? It's funny because... I think it was in the mid-90s. I think it was in the mid-90s. So So imagine, because you've actually mentioned their names in one of your reenactment scenarios. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) I can't think. I can't think. Uh, what, What would... I don't know. So Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta Jones to play Arthur and Elsa Bannister. <laughs> oh, and you say uh, you say John John Woo was going to direct this. Um, possibly. We're talking we're pro- talking we're talking <laughs> mid nineties face off John Woo. Like, I mean, what there would has that to movie be, have been like? There have to be like? some doves in it. There's right? going to be some doves. There'll be going to be some slow motion shooting through the air. I mean that film would have been the greatest film of all time. Like, <laughs> if it was an if it was a remake, imagine that John Woo remaking a, an Orson Welles film. Like, imagine Citizen Kane, but with doves and, and no, double-barreled <laughs> shooting please. through the air. That would have been um, insane. Chow Yun yeah. Fat just just chewing a toothache, <laughs> and then it just says, and then just says Rosebud. Like that would be amazing. I would watch that film a million times. Give me that <laughs> Hollywood's give me that film. Yeah. Um so the, the this thing fell through when um 
Sony Picture Studio head Amy Pascoe decided to focus primarily on teen pictures. Close call, eh? <laughs> I mean, yeah, the name I couldn't remember last week is uh, uh, Scuppered Us. Scuppered yes. the Dream. Yes. So, yeah, talk about too many cooks. Um, Orson Welles' original cut um, was ran for 155 minutes. And then Columbia Pictures went in and just basically did their work. And they even shortened the famous Funhouse finale. So I think this is not 100% Orson Welles' film. It was directed, but I don't think it was his vision. Am I, am, I right, am I right in thinking that we've really only got one pure Orson Welles film? Because, you know, like, there's this and then there's um, The Magnificent Ambersons, which I haven't seen hey, any any version no, of. That is, no, such, a, know, that, that just, is such a sore spot. I know, I'm just asking, oh no, that's why I'm asking. Like, is is yeah, there, like, such thing yeah. as a pure Orson Welles film or is Citizen Kane it? I think, well, well, I think if you watch Touch of, e- Touch of Evil, is also quite... Oh, Touch of Evil as well. But isn't there well, like a couple? Isn't there a couple of versions of that as well? I will have to look into it because I'm not sure. Okay. But I think he was. Well, there's there's a few other f- films that he did, like Times at Midnight, and um, in Europe that were quite interesting, but nothing kind of came to close to. I think he was disenchanted with the whole idea after. The Magnificent Ambersons because basically they destroyed that film. I watched it recently and it just felt super sad because it you could see what could have been, but you can't see it as, you know, it's yeah. not an Orson Welles film. And it's one of those things that I've read about, like there might be a, 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 an Orson Welles cut somewhere in Brazil. There might be that might be somewhere hidden, like a, a missing film that yeah. was cut by Orson because he was in Brazil at the time, and I think there was a there was a copy. Here's here's hoping that maybe like you know before we die we find that that copy. I mean that's that's if that's if Bolsonaro hasn't decided to set fire to it along with the Amazon. Yeah, or that yeah. Or that yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that thought. Um, no, that's alright. Yeah. <laughs> You asked me last time to find out if the film was well received at the box office. I just mm. I could not find any numbers. I think the budget was around two million because of all the delays with people being sick, with people dying, Orson changing the setups, location, um, changing the script. Uh, yeah. I don't think it made its money back because it was not well received by critics either. I found a um, quote from Variety saying the quote, rambling style used by Orson Welles has occasional flashes of imagination, particularly in the tricky backgrounds he uses to unfold the yarn, but effects while good on their own are distracting to the murder plot. So yeah. I think they kind of pinpointed the same thing you have, which is kind of what makes it really confusing. However, um, it has since been re-released with a five-star review from Peter Bradshaw, which I will share in the show notes. Uh, I think it's a really good read. And it, it basically explained why it's a classic that ends up on the best noir list most of the time by noir aficionados and why we, we've added it onto our um, noir program. 
And we've covered the blind spot. We have. Cool. So thank yeah. you for not having seen it, so we can yeah. talk about it. No problem. I will make cool. sure. I will make sure. I I haven't watched many other classic films for us to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think that's kind of it. What I had uh, in terms of um, fun facts and notes on Orson Welles and the lady from Shanghai. Awesome. I think um, one one final thing. I think that Rita Hayworth really liked and trusted his vision, and I think she was disappointed with the way the studio reacted to to what we wanted to to do by having it like a year on the shelf. I mean, yeah. imagine being afraid of one one little haircut. I mean, I have I do actually have an anecdote about a haircut that potentially ruined a TV show. Uh, the TV show Felicity, where Kerry Russell had her hair cut I between remember season that. one and season two, and um, the studio heads at um, I think it was Warner Brothers were were very very unhappy because they thought it ruined the look of Felicity. Um, I think it's between actually was it season one, season two, or season two. Or season two. Anyway, but, but they anyway, made it. They wrote. Thing. They wrote it into the film, didn't they? They wrote into, it into, into the, the TV series. Yeah, but yeah, there was a whole. It was that. a whole big thing. It was a whole big thing about. Kerry Russell cutting her signature haircut and uh yeah they they thought it was going to ruin the ratings of the series um so yeah it's not it's not a, it's not a new thing i mean felicity was what late 90s so yeah, yeah um late 90s early 2000s so you know what what was what was relevant in hollywood in 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 the 40s is relevant you know even as recently as that so yeah it's not unheard of yeah, so we 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 go on from the the confusing, um, you know, the confusing narrative or the semi confusing narrative, I suppose, of of the lady from Shanghai, through to the mysteries of Under the Silver Lake, um, a film which came out in two thousand eighteen from director David Robert Mitchell. Um, this is his third. This was his third feature film after teen uh, film uh, The Myth of the American Sleepover and. The horror film uh, *It Follows*, which came out in 2015. So I have a bit of a brief synopsis. Um, young and disenchanted Sam meets a mysterious and beautiful woman who swimming in his building's pool one night. When suddenly she vanishes the next morning, Sam embarks on a surreal quest across Los Angeles to decode the secret behind her disappearance, leading him into the murkiest depths of mystery, scandal, and conspiracy. So this film stars Andrew Garfield and Riley Keogh with supporting terms from Topher Grace and Jimmy Simpson. Um, like I said, this film came out in 2008, uh, 2018. It's kind of um, fallen under the radar, hasn't it? Well, I, I will get into For that. For me. I, I, yeah, I, I will get into that. So, um, Danny, what, what did, you, did you, were you able to unravel the mysteries of the Silver Lake? <sighs> I... I probably wasn't I, I i i thought it was good but i was kept thinking about it there was lots of loose ends that i just didn't make out i just didn't understand um during what during my my viewing it i found myself constantly asking why does he need to find the girl that he only spent like a few hours with but then you kind of think okay he's the kind of guy who is addicted to puzzles right he wants He's basically trying to decode a glance from someone on, on, on television. 
And then I kind of makes you wonder why he was never interested in finding out who was the dog killer. Or have I... I don't know. Um, yeah. A very heavy plot, very labyrinthine. I found it was clever how every detail is, is there in the shot for a reason, like the Playboy cover that you kind of see at the end. Um, I like the cameos from Zosia, uh, Mamet and uh, Patrick... Fischler? Yeah, Fischler, yeah. Yeah, talk about ripping off Mulholland Drive. Yeah. Yeah, I just I just felt like it was a lot of L.A. stuff, like a lot of L.A. referencing and a lot of L.A. like sort of shoving it down your throat, like this is happening in L.A., this is the L.A., Hollywood, L.A. A bit a bit too much. Um, I was kind of hoping for a, 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 a more clever twist or, I don't know, it's... I didn't like the ending, to be fair. I was kind of hoping... It kind of kept me interested and up until a point. I think I felt there were a bit too many pieces of the puzzle that just didn't make sense to me. I did like um, the occasional dark humour and all the references to old Hollywood. Um, of I course, knew you'd like, like that. Of course. And I just felt like, you know, the songwriter was like a stand-in for, you know... Is talking about Citizen K, you know, W, Randall W. Hearst and Rupert Murdoch and Jeff Bezos and like, you know, the creator of trends and opinions and cultures and ideas and like the media man. So I just felt like, you know, there were a few, a few things that I didn't, didn't quite make sense to me. I mean, the old, owl kiss lady story, <laughs> there's nothing to it, right? What? happened she just kills the the comic guy and then wants to kill him but just he shouts at her and he just runs away and you don't see her again unless unless it was kind of not unless it was a figment of his imagination how many times have you seen it um let me check my letterboxed log uh this would have been my fifth time right because on first viewing, I was just like, okay, but yeah, she's a figment of. So she's a figment I'm, I'm, of, his, I'm, of the imagination. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying she is. I'm just saying unless she is, because there are several occasions through the film where these weird kind of things happen, and the owls kiss, um, the owl lady, kind of. I don't know. Is he seeing her? Is he? Is that what? What is that? So, um, yeah. It's kind of okay. It is. Yeah, I just felt like, it, and and that thing with like the bunker and the the celebrities sect yeah. thingy that just it didn't that kind of fell flat for me. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting viewing, and probably will watch it again. I like Andrew Garfield's performance. I thought he was good. Yeah, I mean, so that yeah, this this is like, I mean, from last week's film, which was my one of my favorite films of twenty eighteen. This is my joint favorite. This is, along with uh, Spider Spider Man into Spider Verse, is my favorite film of twenty eighteen. Okay. I, I was blown away by this film when I saw it. Um, Yeah. So like, uh, um, David Robert Mitchell's. Um, second feature film um, It Follows was kind of ended up just blowing up the horror genre I mean it was this really tight uh, 100 minute horror you film 
Um, I don't know if you've seen it. Oh my god, I couldn't actually watch it until I I had to stop it midway through because I was I was actually scared. Wow. I was I was I think I was alone. I was I I was it was night time. <laughs> I was alone. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not the kind of film to watch alone. And I was basically I'm like you know I can't watch this right now. I just can't. Yeah. So I stopped it. It was it was so creepy. God, I mean it just. It just made you feel very, very uneasy, like very, very physically anxious. Yeah. So um, yeah. So that film was very, very referential to a horror genre, horror film that we don't see anymore. Um, it's the kind of film you kind of expect from John Carpenter from the eighties, and we don't see that kind of film anymore. And with this, like, I kind of feel that he's trying something another kind of film that we don't see anymore such as you know the lady from shanghai you know I, th- I think there's a lot of similarities between the two films and kind of how they kind of approach their narrative so just like i said despite kind of it follows kind of just blowing up the horror genre you know it was you know it, it did very very well you know it was kind of like this sleeper hit which kind of came out of nowhere um very very critical appraisal kind of across the board um so a24 kind of picked up this film at a cam um where it kind of got a mixed reception and that and then was kind of signaled that they were going to do a, a wide cinema release and then kind of coinciding with the the times up me too movement this film was kind of un like dropped from a wide cinema release in america and overseas and kind of unceremoniously dumped on VOD, um, where it was like it almost seemed as though A twenty four just didn't care about the film. But I have a feeling they just didn't know what to do with the film. Um, I think a few special screenings kind of made their way out in the states, and then over here, due to a deal where they had A twenty four made with Mubi, um, the UK was one of the few countries to actually get a cinematic, wide cinematic release of the film. I'm not talking in like, you know, big cinemas like Showcase or, or Cineworld of View. I'm talking, you know, a Picture House and all the independent cinemas around the country. Um, and, the, you know, this film was kind of one of the lucky countries to kind of get that. And um, so I saw it twice in one day. Um, I saw it on the VOD release. And then when I found, I realised it was being shown later that day at the, the local cinema. I then booked my ticket and watched it later that night um, because there was no way I was going to miss it on the on on a bigger screen um i at the time before watching i heard about this film that had kind of mixed reviews some disliking it some hated it ferociously peter bradshaw gave it a one star review um mark kermo didn't like it very much there are a couple of american film critics that kind of liked it eric cohen gave it a good review emily ashida gave it a good review and then there are other people who kind of like me, who ended up kind of being drawn in by it and kind of finding a lot to admire, a lot to love, and a lot to kind of get assessed and consumed by. Which, the narrative does a very, very good job at feeding into that. You know, it's very, very deliberately opaque on first viewing, and it very, very much rewards itself like an open map painting upon repeat viewings. I think David Robert Mitchell wrote his script to include lots of pop culture details, for us, the viewer, to obsess over. Um, I think in this fifth viewing, I was sat there and then I tried to figure out what the Janet Gaynor film that was being shown 
um was and and it would you know it I didn't catch on these early viewings that his mum told him what the film was because the film kind of throws so much stuff at you between the time when she says about the film and the time when you're actually watching the film. Um, yeah, so there is so I think that, so much so that there's with these mysteries of Under the Silver Lake that there is there is even a still active subreddit um, that attempts to kind of uncover all these mysteries and kind of uncover all the you know, little things that are in the film. Um, this film is so much about toxic masculinity. Um, yeah. Think about how Andrew Garfield at one point literally stinks. Um, you know, there is an uh, implication that he could be the dog killer um, that we're not really kind of sure about. Um, this film goes into a, into a lot of detail about obsessive fandoms, fetishizing women, breakups, violence in a beautiful world there's sexism male fantasy you know the celebrity culture that we live in and then like kind of our love of art that ends up speaking personal to us um i think the scene that does that in particular with utterly utterly brilliance is the, is the songwriter sequence and there's the beautiful it's a really really well constructed melody of songs um, it could it could have quite easily been a mishmash of here, there, and everywhere, and kind of not been able to pin down. But it's so watching on repeat viewings, you really kind of appreciate how well constructed that piece of music is. Even though you know it's just a mixture of different songs, but when he hits with the the smells like Teen Spirit, and he's like, uh oh, that's one you know, that's something I wrote that wasn't written on a on a on a guitar on a shredded guitar. You know, I I wrote it somewhere between a blowjob and an omelette. Yeah. And Andrew Garfield's face kind of this, this kind of hits him like a fucking ton of bricks. And it's like this piece of music that I have so much attachment to, you know, this musician that I have so much attachment to didn't write is their greatest piece. And it, it, it kind of kind of opens up whether the piece of art that we actually hold dear is actually meant for us in the first place, or is it is just a part of a consumerist culture? Um, yeah, I, I said I, that, and that sequence ends with an utter sucker punch of a violent end. Yeah, um, that comes out of nowhere, and the film has these and little it, gruesome moments at times. Which and is he destroys cool. a guitar. He destroys Kurt Cobain. He guitar. does. He does. He 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 uses Kurt Cobain's guitar. Um. Yeah, it is, and you kind of think, what what's that going to do to him? Um, mm. I really would love to go into deeper detail with this. I mean, the, like I said, you know, this film kind of goes into a lot of a lot of things that really end up revealing themselves on, on repeat viewings. I don't know if you're able to pick up on some of the stuff on this on your first viewing. Um, there is a really really good. Yeah, I was. I I, I think I made a note to, like you know. Similar, referencing Marilyn Monroe many times, referencing Rear Window. Um, they the girl called the dog Coca Cola after an advertisement, so it's all about advertisement and it's all about like you know consumerist culture, and it's all in like there's so many details about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there's a there's a really really good video essay which I'm gonna link to in the show notes. Um, which kind of discusses how the film itself reflects the career of Andrew Garfield, 
Um, in particular, its links to Spider-Man, um, his role in the, in the, the Sony Spider-Man films. Um, Topher Grace, who is also in the film, um, was also in a Spider-Man film. Um, so there's kind of, there is definitely something there that, that there's, that's due to be said. There is a little sequence where he gets a Spider-Man comic stuck to his hand, which is very much a homage to the, the original comics. But then is perhaps on with it is actually Andrew Garfield wanting to say I'm done with Spider-Man I'm moving on. Mm. Um, the the video essay also goes into how the film kind of portrays incel behavior. There's a lot of stuff about obsessive uh, male culture, about pop culture references, and wanting to unravel all these things and wanting to obsess over you know a missing woman who you just meet for one night and then also end up using a drone to stare at a crying model but not having any kind of association or any kind of emotion attachment to an emotional outpouring that's happening in front of them yeah i thought um, that was very poignant that scene yeah. with the with the model yeah so it and then, you know it, it, there's a lot there i think there's a, definitely a lot there to be said about the incel behavior and i and 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 the idea of our pop culture obsession definitely in in links to in links to to masculinity um, I'm going to link to um, that thing in the show notes. I could talk for this about this film for quite a, a lot of detail. Um, I'm really tempted to I actually think, write a piece yeah, on it. So. There are so many details in it. And I've, I've, I mean, I've noticed mo- quite a few of them on my first viewing, but I'm sure I've missed quite a few of them as well. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting film and I think it was quite well paired with, with like the other noir film that we've discussed, um, The Lady of from Shanghai because it just like the, the narrative like you said it's like the structure of, of it is very much maze like it's deliberately maze like and the yeah. and the and the um revelation that that Sam kind of comes to with the songwriter this massive revelation isn't the revelation he's looking for it's just the how to the answer it's not the why um and it's not until he gets to the why where, like you said, you know, you felt almost what disappointed by the end, let down. Yeah, and I, I, it was probably the point, the whole point, wasn't it? Yeah, because at the end of the day, like Riley Keough's character says to him, "You only knew me for a night. Why did you come looking for me? It's my choice. It's not anything to do with you." And he, we spent the entire film being on board with him and his mission to be find out what happened to this woman but we never thought to question does this woman want to be found in the first place is it are we should we even be bothered should we even um try to unravel her reasoning it's her decision but we have been someone born with a male point of view with looking at yeah, this thing, or this yeah. particular male point of view looking at thing so i think i think said i think it's a really really interesting film to look at and it's kind of got this cult um like i said with the reddit the subreddit and it's kind of in recent years or since it's come out it's kind of developed this almost cult following it's quite a lot of youtube video essays going over it the one i've linked to is definitely one of the best better ones about it so yeah under the silver lake is is one of my it's like i said my joint favorite film of 2018 and i'm really happy that we've gotten the chance to talk about it and partnered with a film that kind of makes sense cool so what have you got on for next week? <laughs> um, so, Danny, next week um, we, we're, we're starting our triple bill of um, what we're calling the Buster Keaton 135th, 135th 
birthday spectacular. Oh no. Um Is so it coming is, already? I can't it believe it. It's we we planned this. We planned this back in February and we are we are here <laughs> already. Um It feels like up. it's flown by, doesn't it? <laughs> Sorry. It it does it really does. It really, really does. Um and we, we what we wanted to do, we wanted to kind of go back to our first episode where we spoke about Buster Keaton film with another kind of modern contemporary film and kind of compare it. But after discussion, after, you know, reviewing back what we had done, Danny and me came to the conclusion that we didn't talk enough about Buster Keaton, especially due to Danny's love of him and want the chance to kind of talk more. So his 135th birthday is is a perfect excuse, um, as if you need an excuse, but we've trying to link it in with that. So we've got three <laughs> films coming up, uh, one after the, one week after the other. Um, I'm not going to tell you what each of those ones are, except for next week's. So, um, and then we've partnered them with a contemporary film that you know, like our podcast theme suggests, which kind of hopefully is a really really good comparison. So, with that in mind, next week's film, uh, Buster Keaton film, is Steamboat Bill Jr., directed by Buster Keaton and Carl Reisner from 1928 and we will be comparing this to scott pilgrim versus the world which is from 2010 directed by edgar wright starring michael sarah and elizabeth with uh, mary elizabeth winstead so oh. it's um i like edgar wright and you've not seen scott pilgrim so i we have go, not we, yeah we go from one cult film to another because under the silver lake is very much a cult film it's kind of gaining the it... status scott pilgrim has definitely got this it, it bombed when it came out and uh over you know it, it was the 10th anniversary a few weeks ago and there was a lot of internet kind of uh celebration about the film so yeah i'm looking forward to seeing it then. and they said we get to talk about steamboat bill jr which i've been really looking forward to watching and I I've really been can't off. wait for you to see it. I've been putting it off. So, like I said, we've got three episodes coming up, one after the other, to do with Buster Keaton. So, hopefully, you, you join us for all three of those. And with that in mind, um, Danny, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Kino Joan, and my website is uh, kinojoan.co.uk. And you can find me on Twitter at Nick S. Chandler, and my website is superatomovision.com. Like I said, like Danny said beforehand, drop us an email, kinotomic at gmail.com. And our Twitter is at kinotomic. Drop us a follow on there. So with that, it is a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. And a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. Bye.